I'm Marcus Greatheart. And I'm David Ball. Welcome to the Addiction Practice Pod. This is a podcast of the BC Center on Substance Use about approaches to substance use care and treatment. Recorded on the unceded traditional territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. The reach of this work touches on all 198 First Nations in British Columbia. I'm a physician, social worker, advocate, and mentor specializing in addiction treatments, social justice in healthcare, and doctor-patient communication. And I'm a journalist with a decade reporting on substance use, mental health, and public health policies. This is a podcast for healthcare providers focused on issues here in British Columbia. We'll hear from clinicians, policymakers, and people with lived experience on approaches to substance use care that work. Alcohol is a leading contributor to substance-related deaths in BC, associated with 2.5 times the deaths from all unregulated substances combined. This is partly due to how common high-risk drinking and alcohol use disorder are across Canada. That's right. Over 18% of Canadians 15 years of age and older have met the criteria for an alcohol use disorder in their lifetime. And an estimated 15% of individuals who consumed alcohol in the past year reported heavy drinking, which means at least once a month they had five or more drinks on a single occasion for men or four or more drinks for women. Of course, many of us have heard Health Canada's newly developed low-risk drinking guidelines, which are considerably stricter. Today, however, we're focusing on alcohol use disorder. Many people think individuals living with AUD should just stop drinking abruptly. This is sometimes called stopping cold turkey. But this can be very dangerous, since untreated withdrawal can cause seizures, delirium tremens, or death in severe cases. Yes, and withdrawal management can prevent these potential complications and make patients more comfortable during this process. In addition, withdrawal management can be an important opportunity to direct individuals to continuing care. On this podcast episode, we'll hear more about why withdrawal management is so important and where it fits in the alcohol use disorder continuum of care. And of course, as usual, you can find the articles and resources we discussed during today's podcast in the show notes. Today, we want to bring you a couple different perspectives. First, we wanted to gain some insight into the different withdrawal management pathways and clinical options. Avi Kila is a clinical nurse specialist who has worked in harm reduction, primary care, and withdrawal management settings such as Insight and Vancouver Detox. She has also supported research focusing on evaluating the Prediction of Alcohol Withdrawal Severity Scale, or PAUSE, tool. Avi, it's really great to have you here with us to talk about this. Can you kind of start by explaining what withdrawal management is for people who don't know? Yeah, so withdrawal management, I see it on a continuum. So it's the process of actually withdrawing from a substance. And sometimes your goal is abstinence versus other times your goal is to actually stabilize on a different medication. That's more the case with opiate use. But for alcohol use, normally people go through withdrawal management to stop drinking. That's fascinating. How long have you been doing this work? I've been doing this work probably would say for about four years as a registered nurse, but been working in substance use for most of my nursing career. 
Avi, from a clinical standpoint, how does alcohol withdrawal management differ between people at low or high risk of developing severe complications? Can you walk us through the withdrawal management pathways? Absolutely. So for some people, depending on their previous experience with withdrawal or how often they've gone through withdrawal, and also based on how much they drink and other patient-specific factors, they could be high risk for withdrawal. So in those cases, we're worried that someone going through withdrawal could have, say, like a seizure or delirium tremens. So they need to be more supervised during their withdrawal. Whereas for other folks, they can actually be quite low risk for complications around alcohol withdrawal. So they can be normally managed at outpatient settings, and those symptoms may more look like anxiety, they may have some tremors, they may feel generally unwell, some GI symptoms, so nausea, vomiting, but generally we're not worried that they're going to have complications during their withdrawal. I think that's where opiate withdrawal and alcohol use withdrawal can differ a little bit where the actual withdrawal can be very dangerous for folks if they abruptly stop drinking without proper management. Abby, can you describe some of the tools clinicians are using to help determine the appropriate alcohol withdrawal management pathway? The PAUSE tools. It's a prediction of alcohol withdrawal severity scale. So it's actually one of the only tools we have that can give us, or at least inform us a little bit about what someone's withdrawal may look like, if they're going to have severe complications or not. It's actually a questionnaire. So there's 10 questions on it. So we will go through the physician will normally go through and someone who's trained in using it, because I think that also impacts its appropriate use. The tool will ask you, have you drank in the last 30 days? Have you accessed services for alcohol withdrawal before? Have you experienced complications? And then we'll ask more about some of the more serious complications, such as seizures or delirium tremens. So at the end of it, this is scored. And if your pause is equal to or greater than four, then we consider that you may have, you're at risk for having more complications during alcohol withdrawal and you would be better suited in an inpatient setting. So it's, it provides a scale of where you are in terms of your risk for alcohol withdrawal. And then based on that, it'll support providers in directing the person to the right resources or the right services, such as inpatient withdrawal or outpatient withdrawal. Some folks tend to land in the middle, and I think that's where outpatient withdrawal services can be utilized really well. I think one of the limitations we have with the tool is that it's actually validated in an inpatient setting and not in community. So currently it can support us in informing our decision, but isn't used to actually make a decision around, does this person need outpatient or inpatient withdrawal? I think sometimes in primary care, there's a little bit of nervousness of what if the person starts to decompensate during their withdrawal, or what if it doesn't go as planned or there was something missed? So we have in Vancouver and now in the interior, we have outpatient withdrawal services. So it is home-based withdrawal, but there's more intensive nurse monitoring to support the clients, including home visits and telephone follow-ups. So that way we can assess, is the withdrawal going as we expected? And if we realize, you know what, we feel like this person is needing more medication, or maybe they're actually needing more intensive supervision, we can actually have them referred to inpatient. You mentioned a few parts of the continuum of care for alcohol use disorder. Zooming out a bit, where do you see withdrawal management sitting on that continuum? If we see it as including what you've talked about, as well as psychosocial interventions, pharmacotherapy, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think alcohol withdrawal actually sits across the entire continuum. So I think we start with primary care. And I think for providers, like some people, their goal is an abstinence. And I think that's okay, because we work from a very recovery-oriented model. So it could be they're interested in reduction and naltrexone, actually a great option for folks who want to maybe reduce their drinking versus then we're moving more to our outpatient withdrawal. So people are, their goal is 
usually to stop drinking. And then we can do that acute withdrawal in that five to seven days, ideally. And then they can be on put on relapse prevention medication, such as naltrexone or camprosate. And then, then we move into more the inpatient withdrawal. The risk of withdrawal for alcohol can be quite dangerous or it can be quite severe and does need 24-hour medical supervision. So folks who need withdrawal from alcohol would be situated in that inpatient detox. And then for some folks, you know, if they've had very severe complications or they have other comorbidities that could complicate their withdrawal, such as maybe liver disease or other things, then maybe they're better situated in hospital, at least for the initial part, so they can be stabilized to ensure that they're getting to a point where they're safe and they don't need that extra monitoring. That's really fascinating. So it really does fit across the whole spectrum of care. And it sounds to me like I'm hearing just not to make an assumption about each individual patient, but to actually put their interests and wishes first think about where they're at, what they're trying to access. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's how we engage folks in healthcare. And we feel like it's a safe and trusted environment for them is that for them to have that autonomy to choose. And for us as healthcare providers to be able to provide it and meet them where they're at. I think that's a big part of being very trauma informed in our care. It's an investment in the patient and in their relationship. So that in the future that they might feel safer to come to us to actually ask for help with their alcohol use when the time is right for them to reduce their use or request a detox. From the perspective of a physician working in a more remote location, inpatient withdrawal management services are not always available or accessible. If an individual living in a rural or remote area needs inpatient care but can't access it, are there ways to safely manage withdrawal management in an outpatient setting? That's an interesting question. I think it also speaks to our need of more investment and resource allocation, but I think it really depends on the patient. If we look at what are their risks for withdrawal, if they're high risk for withdrawal, like of having a seizure or delirium tremens, that person would not be well situated in outpatient withdrawal. And I think that's where they definitely would need to be inpatient. As much as outpatient withdrawal works really well for some folks, and I think it's foundational in us providing the continuum of alcohol use care. I don't think it's appropriate for everybody. Avi, I think one of the other tensions that comes up for providers around home detox is providing folks who are using alcohol with benzodiazepine medications to take home. That is, in some ways, contrary to our training. Can you speak to that? Absolutely. And I think that when we've initiated or rolled out new outpatient withdrawal programs, I think that always comes up. And I think it's a little bit of obviously we want to keep the patient safe. We also want to practice safely because we're at the end of it responsible for the things we prescribe and the care that we give. So I think it's really important when we are setting up our outpatient withdrawal services that we put safety checks in place to ensure. Like I think educating the patient is really important. One of the great aspects of outpatient withdrawal management is that we ask people to have a support person for the first 72 hours that's available. And I think it's a second set of eyes in case the withdrawal starts to maybe go sideways while the nurse is not available. They know the signs and symptoms to look for. That person would need to access care maybe in a hospital, or they can call the nurse that's on call to get more direction around care. So I think what we do is we also ask that person to also support the medication adherence. And also if the person decides they don't want to 
continue with the alcohol withdrawal, support them in disposing of the medications at the pharmacy. So I think we do like a risk-based assessment for each client. I think recognizing that for a lot of folks, when they're feeling unwell, they don't want to go to the pharmacy for daily dispense. And that puts them at high risk for starting to drink again, rather than going through the withdrawal. So we use things like blister packing our medications, the pharmacy supporting us and ensuring that it's easy for the patient to know when do I need to take this medication, having the support person as well. And then also the nurse checking in and ensuring. And if you're realizing, okay, you know what, they're taking more benzos than we maybe initially anticipated. Doing an assessment, like what's going on? Is their withdrawal more complicated than we had initially assumed? And I think the other piece is really screening to ensure initially that they don't have polysubstance use. Maybe there isn't an underlying benzo use disorder or other concerns that we have around their use. And of course, I guess in medical settings, drugs are contraindicated all the time and an assessment has to be made of what the risks are worth the benefits. And it sounds like what you're saying is the alcohol withdrawal risks need to be brought into that factoring and thinking that can be managed better if everyone's aware of as much information as possible instead of saying no, no benzos for somebody who is alcohol use disorder, for instance. Yeah. And I think for, you know, outpatient withdrawal, we also looking at alternatives. Like I think that there's recommendations that we use gabapentin instead of benzodiazepines. So I think really assessing, do we need to use benzodiazepines? Is it really appropriate in the setting or could we utilize gabapentin? And that's also ensuring that we are following best evidence around what's going to work effectively, as well as minimizing the risk of someone having an adverse outcome to the actual management of their withdrawal. It's so fascinating. Very briefly, you've seen this work in practice that you could balance all of these different risky scenarios and treatment to get people the help they need. You've seen it in practice? Yeah, absolutely. So I've worked outpatient withdrawal management and also in the frontline and leadership capacity and different health authorities. And it actually works really well. And I think there's also this recognition that as AUD is on a continuum, so are folks that use alcohol. And I think what outpatient withdrawal management has highlighted for us is that there are folks that maybe aren't experiencing homelessness, maybe aren't as entrenched as some folks may assume, but also are struggling with alcohol use. They are working, they are living their lives as for normal, but they are struggling with alcohol use. So I think this is a really good option for those folks. So I think it's really highlighted this other hidden community that struggles with alcohol use disorder that may not be accessing resources that maybe are traditionally embedded into substance use care, both medical resources and psychosocial resources. Thanks so much for sharing your experience on that. This has been really informative. For primary care clinicians that are listening, can you kind of offer some of the thoughts on how they can bridge the gap between this withdrawal management we're talking about and then providing the continued care to ensure their patients don't fall through the cracks? Absolutely. I think primary care providers are like essential in ensuring that AUD treatment is successful and it's patient-centered. So I think after someone has done the acute part of their withdrawal, if they're started on relapse prevention medications such as naltrexone and acamprosate, ensuring that they're able to continue that and ensuring that they are actually able to do any of the monitoring that's needed, assessing if it's working well or if maybe they need to try a different medication. And I think we're very lucky that here in BC with BC Center for substance use, they have the resources needed to ensure that they have proper education and training in order to continue that care for alcohol use disorder. That was Avi Kila, clinical nurse specialist and researcher. Next, we want to hear from someone with lived experience 
Sandra Stewart is a former member of the East Side Illicit Drinkers Group for Education. She brings lived experience of illicit alcohol use and indigeneity. My name is Sandra Stewart. I'm a recovering alcoholic a little over three years, and I intend to stay that way. My biggest goal in life is to help others like me, as I've been homeless. I struggled with alcohol for most of my life, so that's my biggest goal right now, is to help other people out there like me. And even if I could help one person at a time. At the time when I first got involved with Vandu, I was heavily into my drinking, and my drinking did escalate. It got so bad that when I didn't have the money for normal, regular alcohol, I would buy the illicit alcohol, which was rubbing alcohol, or we call it rubby down here, and I would even drink mouthwash. I may not look like it now. I bet you people wouldn't even believe me, but that's what I resorted to is that when I didn't have enough for... I never ever in my whole entire life thought I would drink sherry and that's what I was drinking was a cheap bottles of sherry. So it would be like 10 bucks for a huge bottle. That would last myself all day or a couple days. So yeah, and then that's when I found Edge, my partner actually introduced me to it. His name's Van. I start going to those meetings and I felt like I'm really included in there because everybody was the same around me. We all drank and we were all alcoholics, so I didn't feel like anybody was judging me or looking at me or anything. So I really enjoyed the meetings and uh, yeah, that's how I got started in Edge. And what they are is they help people that are dealing with the illicit alcohol. So the rubbing alcohol and the mouthwash. Yeah, my partner, he doesn't drink it anymore. He drank. I didn't even know about that stuff till, till he sh- he didn't show me what it was. He was hiding it. So I found a bottle under my bed, and I'm like, "What the heck is this?" He goes, "Oh, I have a cut on my back, so I use it to clean it." And I was always wondering, why does his breath smell like paint thinner and stuff? And that's how I got introduced to it. I didn't know people actually drink it. It's just a big part of addiction that you'll, you have that want so badly that you're willing to drink anything just to make yourself feel better. I thought, oh, I think you can just quit cold turkey, but I tried that once. It gives you the really bad shakes. You get the, where you're so nauseous, you can't even hold water down and it's bad. So it's really important, I think, if you know that somebody is not ready to quit drinking, that they always have access to alcohol. The word alcohol, it sounds so like it wouldn't be dangerous, but it is. I was getting really sick. So it was getting to the point where my whole body was cramping. Like I was even involved in the board and I couldn't even go to board meetings because it would be, it would be embarrassing to me because my whole hands, I couldn't even, They'd cramp up so badly, and that's why I don't understand why it took them so long to know how, like, I was in desperate need of a liver, why it took them so long to even put me on that list. 
because I was sober for a year and they say it only takes six months. And I was so sick, I was going up there every two weeks to get my lungs drained. So what they do is they'd stick a large needle in your back and pull all the fluid out of your lungs. So that's how sick they let me get. And this is just the truth of it all. If I had been Caucasian, I would have got that liver transplant right away. It was harder for me because I'm Indigenous and they stereotype us into thinking that, okay, maybe even if she did get the liver, I don't think she's going to quit drinking. I think she's just going to waste that liver and we'll have wasted all of those medical dollars for nothing. That's why they made me jump through all of those hoops. And if I didn't have a strong voice like I do, it was mostly my daughter because I was so sick to even speak up for myself. It was my daughter that helped me get that. Without her, I, it would have been even more difficult. I think with the ambulance or paramedics, I think they have to operate with more compassion. I know they're overtired and stuff, but there's no need for mean comments. He goes, oh, so I hear you're getting a liver transplant. And I'm like, yeah, and he said it in a happy tone. So I thought, okay, it's gonna be a nice conversation. And he said, well, I hope you take care of this liver and not do what you did to your last one. The transplant, if you can avoid it, you quit drinking now. That's what I always tell my partner, Van. You don't want to go through a liver transplant. It's painful. It's scary. You don't know if you're going to walk again. You don't know if you're going to be able to talk properly again. But I made it back and I'm not totally healthy, as healthy as I would be if I didn't, if my whole life wasn't just structured around all of that drinking. I know I'd be healthier, but I'm a lot healthier than before the liver transplant. For myself, for harm reduction is total abstinence. I found that when I did quit, I had way less friends. And it's weird for me because I do know the same people. And I met some of those friends when I was actually heavy into my drinking. So now that I've sobered up, it's like I'm just getting to know them over again. I'm like, how did I ever hang out with that person? Just really different. When you're sober, it's like you don't want to be looked at as, oh, I'm really judgmental. And I think that's how some of the drinkers feel about me, that I'm judgmental, but I'm not. And for me, I don't want them judging me because I'm sober. So I always try to lay that out on the line too. Like I don't put anybody's drinking down and I just try to be as accepting as I can without putting myself in danger. But I also don't want my sobriety thrown in my face. Like I'm acting better than others because I don't. All I want to do is help. Now I found like supportive people. I found a lot of satisfaction in what I do. I do outreach now with the people that stay in the tents and that's a big part of me that keeps me going and everything is just helping them and that's what I've always wanted to do is help people without homes and everything and just make them feel like they matter.
That was Sandra Stewart, former member of the East Side Illicit Drinkers Group for Education. Today, we've heard from a clinical perspective on withdrawal management and from the perspective of someone with lived experience of alcohol use disorder. Marcus, can you help recap some of the clinical pearls? Sure. The purpose of withdrawal management is to alleviate symptoms and potential medical complications of withdrawal, make the patient as comfortable as possible during this process, and transition to continuing care if appropriate, as well as to support the patient's goals around alcohol consumption or cessation. While not all people with alcohol use disorder require it, for some, medically supervised withdrawal management can prevent life-threatening complications such as seizures and delirium tremens. Clinical tools for choosing the appropriate withdrawal management pathways, such as the PAUSE tool that Avi Kila spoke about, are very useful. However, they should be used in conjunction with best clinical judgment. This involves considering factors such as the availability of healthcare resources, like a bed in an inpatient withdrawal management facility, as well as patient preferences and the availability of social supports. Continuing care after withdrawal management is an essential part of comprehensive treatment for alcohol use disorder and can involve pharmacotherapy as well as psychosocial and community supports. It's so important for healthcare providers to be aware of available supports and ensure that information and relevant referrals are offered after withdrawal management. Individuals living in rural and remote communities face greater barriers to receiving care for alcohol withdrawal, such as the lack of inpatient services and significant distances to travel. Outpatient management may be possible through community care and enhanced monitoring. Healthcare providers need to provide compassionate, non-judgmental care to their patients and actively work to reduce internal biases. The language and tone we use with our patients can have lasting impacts on their willingness to access healthcare in the future. Thank you so much to our guests today, Avikila and Sanders Stewart. The BC Centre on Substance Use has a provincial guideline for the clinical management of high-risk drinking and alcohol use disorder and a resource on the withdrawal management pathways we discussed in this episode. We've included these in our show notes, along with some other relevant articles. Here you can also find instructions on claiming CME self-learning credits. Help us create the best possible podcast by filling out our short survey. Just click the link to it in our show notes. This has been a production of the BC Centre on Substance Use. This podcast was made possible through a financial contribution from Doctors of BC, with support from BC's Ministry of Health and Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions, with founding support from Health Canada. The views expressed in the show do not necessarily represent the views of those organizations. I'm Marcus Greatheart. And I'm David Ball. Thank you so much for listening.